scripture for this Lord's Day comes from Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth. Uh, We are in chapter 9 and reading verses 6 through 15. So once again, I invite you to turn in your Bibles and follow along as I read from God's holy and inspired word. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, So that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, He has scattered abroad His gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness You will be made rich in every way, so that you can be generous on every occasion, and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to Him and to Him alone. Amen. We are entering what has come to commonly be known as the holidays. From now until after New Year's Day, American citizens seem to relish this time of the year. As daylight grows shorter and days become colder and grayer and the weather encourages individuals to seek the shelter of home and hearth where that quiet refuge is appreciated more than any other time of the year. At the same time, the holidays provide unique opportunities to gather with family and friends on festive occasions that produce lasting memories, and deeper relationships. And I will admit that while there is a degree of hustle and bustle, what with all the planning and shopping and cooking and baking and cleaning and decorating and wrapping, for some very strange reason, we tend to love these weeks like no others. Of course, that may just be the man in me thinking out loud. I don't know how the ladies feel about all that. But there is no mistaking the fact that the holiday that is immediately before us is perhaps the most cherished if we measure that by our willingness to travel from our homes to be elsewhere for the day. For every year we hear the same claim. 
that Thanksgiving is the most traveled holiday of them all. According to AAA estimates for this year, nearly 55 million people will be in the air or on the road this holiday weekend, which is 8% more than last year, reaching a number that is almost equal to 2019 before the pandemic hit. So even though fuel prices are high and inflation is affecting everybody everywhere, people are willing to go to great lengths to gather around a table filled with great food with those whom they love just so they might give thanks to Almighty God. Well, maybe not that last part. There will undoubtedly be some awkward moments this Thursday, will there not? When just before the guests are given the green flag to dig in, the hostess remembers that it is traditional to have someone offer a prayer before the meal, kind of like the pilgrims did a couple of centuries ago. And so she will scan those gathered around the table looking for whoever might have the greatest inclination to offer a prayer and then ask them point blank without any forewarning to offer a prayer of thanks And what she gets turns into a moment of levity. Rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub, yea, Lord, let's eat. But that's a sad testament to what we have become as a nation. As a nation in these times, whatever gratitude we exhibit is rarely directed toward Almighty God. When, for example, people of some reputation win an award, they thank friends and family and publicists and agents and fans and all the rest, but rarely do they offer their thanks, first of all, to Almighty God who gave them life and talent and abilities without which they would not even be able to stand where they are. People are quick to receive praise. And thanks from others. Because they consider their own achievements to be their own. They consider themselves to be self-made individuals. They'll even sometimes seek to steal the praise of others by touting their own contributions to what someone else has achieved. But rarely do we find folks acknowledging that if it were not for the grace of God, they would not be here so All the praise, all the honor, all the glory should be His. Period. Now those of us, or those of you who have been with us these last many weeks, as we have been making our way through the letter to the Romans, will remember what Paul wrote back in chapter 1 concerning the ungodliness of men. For although they knew God... They did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. You see, God has an expectation that all people will recognize the debt they owe to Him for their very existence, having made us in His image, capable of complex thought, and problem-solving, as well as a wide range of emotions with sensory abilities that produce wonder and spark the imagination, 
as well as a governing conscience designed to help us discern between those things that are right and those things that are wrong and a host of other attributes that place us just a little lower than the angels. The fact that we have landed men on the moon and harnessed atomic energy and developed satellites for instantaneous telecommunication and made huge advances in medicine and agriculture and a host of other industries should cause us to turn to God in thanksgiving with an attitude of gratitude, but it mostly causes people to turn to the mirror and say, well done, oh man. This failure to thank God on the part of most people is a part of what lies behind this portion of the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. For he uses an illustration with them that points to the continual generosity of God towards the world in a way that we soon take for granted. And in doing so, it chokes off any thanks that we might consider. And it has to do with seeds. Encased within every living seed is DNA code that God has written that causes that seed to reproduce when it finds its way to the ground, becomes wet with the rain that God sends, finds some footing in the soil where necessary nutrients are already present, receiving additional supplements from the sunlight that God also supplies. And without any help from men, the seed knows what it was designed to do, and it begins to do it. Its outer covering cracks open, and as life stirs within it, it sends a root down into the earth, even as a sprout reaches towards the sky and begins to grow, sending out receptacles for the sun that we refer to as leaves. And as it grows in length from top to bottom, it begins to produce a crop that is like itself. Butter beans produce butter beans, and corn produces corn, and wheat, wheat, and cotton, cotton, and apples, and apples, and on and on. And there is not a year in which this reproductive principle does not occur But for some depraved reason, mankind wants to take credit for the harvest. You may remember that moment in the movie Shenandoah when Jimmy Stewart's character, Charlie Anderson, offers his prayer of thanksgiving with his family gathered all around the table. And he says, Lord, we cleared this land, we plowed it, sowed it, harvested it. We cooked the harvest. It wouldn't be here and we wouldn't be eating it if we hadn't done it all ourselves. We worked dog bone hard for every crumb and morsel. But we thank you just the same anyway, Lord, for this food that we're about to eat. Amen. Now that stands in stark contrast to the passage we read earlier from Deuteronomy chapter 8, does it not? When the Lord is speaking through Moses to his people, and just as the people are about to enter the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land where the Lord will prosper his people, and God warns them against their heart being lifted up, against exalting themselves, and that they would be tempted to say in their heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. 
And then they are reminded that it is the Lord God who gives them the power to gain the wealth. Now Paul knows that the Corinthians are well aware of the fact that God is our source in all these things. And that God displays His grace in every seed. They know this, for they prove it whenever they sow seed themselves. They're well aware that if you want a small crop, you only sow a few seeds. If you want a bumper crop, then you sow a lot of seeds. You sow bountifully. And they know that if they hope to gain abundance, you cannot leave the seed in the sack on the wall. You have to take that sack out into the field and throw it all away so that it can do its God-designed thing. And when you do that, when you cooperate with the principle for reproduction that God has imbued in the seed, the amount of seed you harvest will be multiplied exponentially. Now Paul is not offering agricultural advice to the Corinthians. He is talking about a different kind of sowing. The kind that he has been talking to the Corinthians about since the closing chapter of his first letter to them. He is talking about responding to the grace of God shown to us in Christ Jesus through tangible means that require us to trust God all the more. Now the circumstance that prompted all this was the trouble that the church in Jerusalem was enduring. The persecution of them was intensifying and the churches throughout Asia Minor and into Greece were being challenged to respond to the need of the mother church through financial support. Now, I don't want to get sidetracked with the underlying issue of the strained relationship between Paul and the Corinthians, which is certainly at work here in the background. My point this morning has to do with the truth that Paul is setting before every believer, which is that God is the source of all that we have and that God has been generous towards us in order that we might be generous as well, in order that thanksgiving might abound unto him. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way, which will produce thanksgiving to God. One of the great challenges that believers face is trusting God with tomorrow. We have this fear that if we plant the seed that we have in our hand, that it might not grow. It might not produce. It might not return to us a crop. And so we attempt to find security by holding on to the seed that we already have. But you see, that calls into question the providence and faithfulness of God. That's to call into question the promises that He has made. And Paul's argument here is that we serve a God who has demonstrated by means of the harvest that He can be trusted year in and year out to care for us, to supply all that we need, in order that we may be generous in every way, so that thanksgiving will abound unto him. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus asked, Why do you worry about these things? 
Your father knows what you need. He feeds the birds of the air who neither sow nor reap. He clothes the flowers of the field and they neither toil nor spin. You're more valuable to him than these things. And he addresses these issues to those that he describes as, Oh, you of little faith. But he also points out that our anxiety over these things is not only due to our lack of faith, it is also due to a misguided faith. Because if our faith is placed in our storehouse of goods, we will be called a fool by God, as was the man who decided to tear down his old barns, big, build bigger barns to house his bumper crop. But instead, our faith must be invested in Jesus Christ. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The kingdom of God and his righteousness is found only through faith in Christ. Now, this is what Paul is addressing with these Corinthians who are being challenged to finish what they started in terms of a financial pledge that they made to this campaign to help those in Jerusalem. And he's challenging them to continue trusting in the Lord who has supplied all their needs. He's reminding them that there's no law that governs our giving. We're not legally required to give. We should not be shamed into giving. But our giving should also be the product of our faith in Jesus Christ. If we give, but it does not stretch our faith, then we probably are not giving enough. If we give but we're angry about it, we should probably back up, re-examine what we're doing because God desires gifts that are freely and cheerfully given. We need to find that spot where our giving sufficiently causes us to trust God for tomorrow, but cheerfully so. Because here's the thing. God is actively involved in the lives of the elect. God supplies them all they need so they may abound in every good work. God's interest in us goes far beyond supplying what we need to survive. God's interest in supplying what we need is so that we have a sufficiency that enables us to abound, to abound in every good work. Now, does that sound to us like God is worried about supply chain issues? Does that sound like God is worried about the inflation rate or what the Federal Reserve will decide at their next meeting? God supplied water from a rock in the desert when the Hebrews cried out in thirst. God supplied food to feed 5,000 men and their women and children with a few loaves of bread and a few small fish. Do we question whether God can supply what we need living in the most prosperous country the world has ever known? So here's our question. Does our giving abound in good work that produces an overflow of thanksgiving unto God? Paul was pointing the attention of the Corinthians towards the church in Jerusalem who would be the recipients of of their gifts, and Paul wanted the Corinthian saints to realize that their liberality in giving would do two things. First, it would meet the immediate financial needs of the saints in Jerusalem, 
but it would also demonstrate for them that the seed of the gospel of Jesus Christ had found fertile soil in Corinth and had produced a crop that multiplied. It would affirm for the saints in Jerusalem that all their trouble, all their suffering, all their times of testing for the sake of Jesus Christ was worth it because the gospel made its way all the way to Corinth and found some there who had been given ears to hear and had added to the number of saints who would one day stand in eternity before the throne of God in worship and praise. But the second thing the Corinthian gift would do is produce an overflow of thanksgiving unto God. The Jerusalem saints would thank God for supplying their immediate need. They would thank God for blessing the gospel message that sprang from the ministry of Christ through His first disciples, multiplying over and again, reaching Corinth and beyond. And you see, this is the most significant thing about our giving. God uses it in ways that cause people to turn to Him in thanksgiving. And this is the posture that people need. A posture of thanksgiving to God recognizes that He is God and we are not. It acknowledges that we are not self-made, but we are creatures who have a Creator to whom we owe our gratitude. It is a posture devoid of pride. It is a posture that acknowledges our dependency. It is a posture that makes us receptive to hearing the Gospel of Christ. And it is a posture that reflects Christ Himself. When Paul closes this portion of his letter, he says, Thanks be to God for his inexpressible or indescribable gift, which of course brought to the minds of the Corinthians the most precious gift that God the Father could ever give to us, the life of his only begotten. Did God hold back his giving to the world? Of course not. Did God skimp when it came to saving us from our sin? No. What about the Son? Did the Son hold anything in reserve? Paul tells us that though He was in the form of God, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but He emptied Himself. And He took on the form of a servant. He poured out His life for our sakes. And like the sower who casts all the seed onto the soil and trusts God for the results, so did the Son pour out His lifeblood and He trusted the Father to use it in a way that would bring Him glory. And you see, our giving is in response to that great gift. Our giving is motivated by that great love. So beloved, let us never doubt the prominence providence of God in supplying all we need and much more in order that we might abound in every good work. Let us not surrender to fears and anxieties about tomorrow, but let us take confidence in our God who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. Let our question not be, will God supply what we need for today? But let our question be, how will God not also with Christ Jesus graciously give us all things? So as we gather with family and friends this week, let us offer prayers of thanksgiving that reflect our confidence in our great God who supplies all that we need and much more. Let me invite you to bow your heads with me now as we pray together.